It is very little known about Islam in China, but Islam went to China in the first century of Islam. So Muslims in China, the population is at least 20 million. That is official number, and we assume it's a lot more than that. And Muslims say that the Prophet sent an emissary to Chinese emperor, though historians could not have been uh, verified this. But it is for certain that in the year 651, the treaty was signed with a Muslim mission, and then that is less than 20 years after the death of Prophet. Now, over the next two centuries, another 40 missions are recorded in the Chinese annals, having arrived at the capital city. The first concrete evidence of Chinese-speaking Muslim communities date back to the 10th century. The Muslims who lived in China transmitted Islamic learning in their own languages, mainly Persian. Not until the 17th century, they began to write books in Chinese. The first person to do so was Wan Dayu, who published the real commentary on the true teaching in the year 1642. So anyway, at the end of 17th century, Several other Muslim scholars had joined him, and they were called Huiru, Muslim Confucians. And in the 19th century, their books came to be called by Chinese-Arabic hybrid word, Han Kitab, the Chinese books. The second major author of this school of thought is Liu Qi. He was probably the best known and most widely read on the Muslim Confucians. He was born about 1670, that is a dozen or so years after the death of Wandayu. In the introductions to some of his books, he tells that his father, with whom he studied the Islamic classics from a young age, always regretted the fact that his Chinese weren't good enough to translate Islamic books. After his father died, Liu Qi isolated himself from society and spent 10 years in mountain forest studying Chinese classics, meaning Confucian classics, Buddhism, and Taoism. It was during this time he says that, I quote, I suddenly came to understand that the Islamic classics have by and large the same purport as Confucius and Mencius. He concluded that if Islam has not going to remain an isolated and provincial tradition, Muslim scholars have the duty to acquaint themselves with Chinese learning and to speak to educated Chinese, whether they be Muslims or non-Muslims, in the universal language of Chinese civilization. In other words, he was vividly aware of 
the necessity of dialogue with the dominant culture of his time. Like Wang Dayu and other authors of the Han Kitab, Liu Qi studied the Chinese classics for the same reason that Muslims who want to write about Islam in English need to be familiar with English literature and Western thought. One large difference, however, is that the Chinese Muslims recognize Confucians as a prophet, and they saw no basic contradiction between Neo-Confucians and Islamic learning. Muslims writing in the modern world are faced with a very different situations, given that the fundamental viewpoints of the mainstreams of modern thought are intensely hostile toward all foremost religious thought, whether Muslim, Confucian, or Chai Christian. Ryuji wrote many treaties, but he is most famous for three books that are called the Tianfan Trilogy. The first deals with the Islamic worldview and the second Islamic practices. The third describes the life of the prophet and explains how he embodies perfect wisdom and perfect virtue. It is the first of these three books that I want to talk about today. Beginning 10 years ago, two colleagues and I began to study and translate it. And we finally published it this spring. The title of the book is Tian Fan Shili, which means Nature and the Principle in Islam. The very title refers to the fact that Liu Qi was understanding a dialogue with a Confucian tradition, or rather, what is commonly called Neo-Confucianism. This is a sophisticated philosophical exposition of the Confucian tradition, and it established the worldview that has been predominant in the Faist for the past thousand years. In Chinese, Neo-Confucianism was often called Xindi Shui, which means the learning about nature and principle. Nature and the principle are two of the most basic themes of Neo-Confucian thought. So, by naming his book Nature and the Principle in Islam, Liu Qi is announcing to Chinese readers that he is interpreting the intellectual roots of the Islamic tradition in terms of standard Chinese concept. The topics that he that discussed in the books are precisely the underlying issues of Neo-Confucian thought, that is, metaphysics, or the nature of the ultimate reality, cosmology, or the nature of the manifest reality that appears from ultimate reality, and spiritual psychology, or the nature of the human soul and its final perfection, a perfection that is achieved by the integration into the ultimate reality. If we had to summarize briefly what Ibn Arabi is talking about in his monumental corpus, 
We could do no better than using the same three terms, metaphysics, cosmology, and spiritual psychology. No doubt, however, all great Muslim philosophers and their Sufis were discussing their same issues. Why then do we say that, in Yuji's case, Ibn Arabi played a major role? There are two basic reasons for this. One is simply that the themes of Yuji's book remind us of the main themes of later Islamic thought under the influence of Ibn Arabi. This means that these themes are not highlighted in the narrower and more technical approaches to Islamic thought that are found in the dogmatic theology and in philosophy, which are the two major schools of Islamic thought. The second reason that we can say that Ibn Arabi played a major role is that Luci names his important sources and the two out of four most important books were well-known patient texts written by Abdul Rahman Jami. Jami was probably the most important and influential popularizer of Ibn Arabi's teaching in the 16th and 17th century. Not only did he write several patient summaries of Ibn Arabi's teachings, but also he was one of the most prolific, popular poets of later times. And his poetical vision is infused with Ibn Arabi's worldview. Also, Jami was not especially influenced in Iran itself. He was widely read in the sphere of passionate cultural influence from the Ottoman Empire in the West to Central Asia, India, South Asia, and China. All the regions received their Islamic learning largely through the passionate forms of Islam rather than the Arab form. This does not, by the way, imply any connection with Shism, which was only beginning to become the predominant form of Islam in Iran during Jami's lifetime, who died in uh, 1992. Jami was a Sunni connected with the Naqshbandi Sufi order. Yuji's nature and principle in Islam is divided into six main parts. The first of this is called the root classic. It is quite short, about 1,600 characters, or 15 pages in five brief chapters. Appended to it are ten diagrams, illustrating the basic ideas discussed in the text. For example, the foundational notion of being, which is ultimate reality in itself, is represented as an empty circle. Yuji calls this circle the diagram of the non-designation of the earliest beginning. This is what Ibn Arabi calls non-demutation of divine essence. Ibn Arabi explained that God in himself is unknowable to anyone but himself and that he cannot be delimited by any limitation whatsoever, not even the limitation of unlimitedness. Some historians have noticed the fact that the text begins with a discussion of being and have assumed that this was a result of Ibn Arabi's influence 
given his fame as a spokesman for the notion of Wahdat al-Wujud, the oneness of being. One scholar, for example, wrote an article in Arabic with a subtitle, The Oneness of Being and the Perfect Human Being in Luci. Before we jump to this conclusion, however, we need to keep in mind that the notion of being was central to Neo-Confucian thought. It was perfectly obvious to Neo-Confucians that being was a designation for the unique reality that gives rise to all things, a reality that is also called Tai Chi, the great ultimate. Chinese scholars would not have been surprised that being was a fast of Luci's diagram and that it designated the primal reality that gave rise to the universe. As I said, the root classic is one of the six parts of Luci's book. It is a short text with five chapters and ten diagrams. Each of the next part of the book elaborates on one of the five chapters by providing 12 more diagrams. Each diagram is then supplemented by detailed explanation of its meaning and significance. Altogether, the book has 70 diagrams. Some of them, about two, 12 diagrams you can look uh, briefly in the Ibn Alawi Society's website. Luci discussed many basic issues of Islamic and Confucian thought. Simply describing the contours of this issue would take up more time than I have for this talk. Instead, I will try to suggest some of the issues that come up when we look at the first chapter of the Root Classic. This chapter, which consists of 244 characters, is called the sequence of the ongoing flow of the creative transformation in the macrocosm. It begins by referring to the, the non-designation of the true being, that is, its non-delimitations I, I just mentioned. This is being in itself the divine essence, which is beyond conceptualization. The book then turns to being is as much as we can talk about it, this, designating it by the name substance, T. This is one of the most basic categories in Chinese thought, always contrasted with function, Jung. Yuji has in mind that Ibn Alawi and his followers designate with names like the divinity. As for function, that refers to the divine attribute, in Luci's version of the scheme, substance is one principle that manifests itself as function. Then function has two basic qualities, which are knowledge and power. These two are root of Inandian, though Inandian do not become manifest until later on in the scheme. Knowledge is considered an attribute because it is receptive to all things. These are the objects of the divine knowledge, everything that can be possibly exist in any manner whatsoever. Power is obviously a young attribute because it acts upon what God knows. The divine activity, the third level after substance and function, then makes the knowledge and, function, the knowledge and power of function manifest by bringing the 10,000 things into existence. 
So only after three more stages of descent from the one. The brief description of the stages of manifestation may seem a bit complicated, but in fact it is a relatively straightforward representation of what Ibn Arabi and his followers describes in much more detail and in several different versions. In the description, there are six basic levels by which the real being becomes differentiated. All six pertain to what he calls the former heaven. The distinction between former and the latter heaven is a famous one in Chinese thought, going back to the Yijin, the Book of Changes. Yuji tells us that the former heaven designated really before the level of manifestation that we experience. Later, heaven designates the universe as we are able to observe it. The former heaven represents the descent of the one being into multiplicity, and the latter heaven represents the ascent of all things back toward the one. After mentioning the levels of former heaven, Yuji's account in the first chapter continues by enumerating the stages of latter heaven. These are the various degrees of awakening consciousness that are mapped out by the appearance of minerals, plants, animals, and humans. At the human level, there are then many more levels of ascending consciousness, culminating in the spiritual perfection of those whom Ruchi calls the sages and worthies. In Arabic, they, are the, they call the prophets and the saints. And they are one of Ibn Arabi's major topics. In the last seven lines of the first chapter, a total of 28 characters, Ruchi sums up the human role in the cosmos, that of taking all of manifestation back to its source through their own consciousness of themselves and the one. I quote, The great transformation follows a circle. When the end is fully realized, it returns to the beginning. Since only humans grasp uniquely the original essence, they are subtly united with the original real. When principles and images are comp completed, the creative transformation is perfect. Thank you. So w when I say that this book demonstrates Ibn Arabi in diagram, a dialogue with the Confucian tradition, what I have in mind is two things. First, as we see in the short chapter, all of the terminology is derived straight from Neo-Confucianism. No educated Chinese would have any difficulty reading the text or understanding its thrust into ter in terms of the predominant worldview of the day. Second, the scheme being presented here belongs to the mainstream of Islamic intellectual tradition as represented by Sufism and philosophy. But among Muslim authors, Ibn Arabi provides the most detailed exposition of every stage of the descent from the one and the return to the one. Islamic texts from long before Ibn Arabi refer to this scheme as Mahd al-Mabda al-Mahd, 
that is origin and return. It is simply a standard way of explaining the principle of Tawhid. Given that ultimate reality is one, our apparent reality must come, must come from this reality and return to it. However, in both Confucianism and Islam, discussion of the origin and the return deals not simply with the structure of the cosmos, but also with an exposition of the human role within the cosmos. In the remaining four chapters of Root Classic, Ryuji continues expanding on the basic teachings of Confucianism and Islam by expanding on the brief description of the origin and the return provided by the first chapter. Then, in the main body of the book, the five remaining sections go into much greater detail about each of the important themes and the notions discussed in the Root Classic. The book explains in brief that the great transformation which is emergence of the cosmos and its subsequent return to its source is consummated by the achievement of union with the one and that this is exclusive province of human being. It explains that the sages and the worthies are the ones who achieve the return to the one origin and who complete the cycle of transformation. The book goes into a good deal of detail explaining why the completion of the cycle of transformation cannot happen simply by the natural cosmic flow. It depends upon human endeavor to steer, steer at the flow and toward the perfect fulfillment. Although duty said in the passage I just quoted, since only humans grasp uniquely the original essence, they are subtly united with the original real. This subtle union can be achieved only by following in the footsteps of sages, especially the utmost sage. A good portion of the text is dedicated to the basic Chinese notion of propriety, li, the way, tao, and the real zen. This designates the three levels of conformity to the root nature that must be actualized before one can return to the original unity that gave rise to the universe. Propriety refers to the dis discipline of the body and the proper ritual component. The way refers to the training of the heart and the mind. The conformity of one's consciousness and awareness to the nature of things. The real represents the final goal, the absolute reality that is the source of both propriety and the way. The discussion of these three levels is based on the standard way of explaining the Islamic tradition in terms of the Sharia, Walibi law, Wataliga, or spiritual path, and the Hagiga or absolute reality. The fifth chapter of the root classic and the last part of the book addresses the nature of the spiritual perfection that is achieved through union with heaven. The discussion is summed up by the large, last diagram of the book which shows an empty circle just like the first diagram. In this case, the diagram represents not the prim 
primal beginning but the final end. We choose to return to the beginning but with full consciousness on the part of those who do return. Thus the final cycle depicts the fruit of the spiritual transformation that occurs when seekers follow propriety and the way and achieve realization of the real. Ryuji calls it the diagram of the real one circling back to the real. In the middle of the first diagram was written being, in the last of this diagram is written real. In conclusion, let me quote the last paragraph of Ryuji's book, which is a summation of the discussion of the full realization of perfection achieved by sages. If the paragraph seems to be built on contradictory statement, this should not be surprising. I mean that if you are familiar with Ibn Arabi's many mind-bending descriptions of the supreme realization, you will be happy to recognize the same sort of language. As Ibn Arabi tells us, when seekers reach union with the one, all conditions are annulled by absolute unity, and they are immersed in what he calls bewilderment. Not the bewilderment of having lost, but the bewilderment of finding the unfindable and the knowing the unknowable in one post-passage. For example, Ibn Arabi talks of bewilderment in these terms, I quote, Tongues by God are too weak to express what hearts know, and hearts by God are too weak to understand the actual situation. They do not know if they are builded or not. Builderment exists, but no locus is known within which it abides. For whom does it exist, and in whom does this property become manifest? For there is none but God. Unquote. Here, there is the final paragraph of Ruchi's nature and principle in Islam. The one thought that already moves fuses with its place of movement, and its trace is nowhere preserved. The one thought that does not yet move is at ease in its non-movement, and its mechanism nowhere issues force. At this moment, there is only silence without effort, only muteness and single signlessness. Real and illusory are not differentiated, substance and function are not distinguished. If you want to discriminate, there is no way to discriminate, and if you want to designate, there is no way to designate. It is still the one realm of the earliest beginning, nothing else. But then is suckling back. Thank you.